Hal's going to share our scripture this morning. Good morning. Today's scripture is from the book of Luke, chapter 10, excuse me, verse 25. You can follow, excuse me, you can follow along in your pew Bibles. It can be found on page 1612. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring and oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The word of our Lord. I tell you, you can take the boy out of the Baptist church, but you can't take the Baptist out of the boy. I feel naked without my suit coat on him. But it is too hot. It is too hot. But we give you thanks. I've made a joke to friends that um, if Methodists ever start to canonize people as saints, I'm going to nominate the man who invented air conditioning. He'll, he'll, be, our, he'll be our first saint. So, who was it? Oh, my, my mother-in-law knows, so she's, she's going to submit the petition uh, for the first Methodist saint, the Mr. Air Conditioning. So, friends, I invite you to join me in prayer today. God, before you, our hearts are opened. Fill us with your presence, with your peace. And God, when we leave this place, may we be different than the way we came in, having encountered you in a real life-changing way. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In Chartres Cathedral, 
there's a beautiful stained glass window. And I tried to find a picture for our PowerPoint today, but I could not find a picture of this window uh, that did it justice. There's a beautiful window, and in this window there's the central pane, and it's the figure of Jesus Christ. And then around that pane of glass are five other Bible stories. The message of the window is um, sort of this culmination in Jesus. And at the top, one of the largest pains there is the fall. Sin entering into the world. The beginning of the book of Genesis. We know the story. And there's another beautiful pain in that stained glass window. And you know what it is? It's the story of the Good Samaritan. I've been spending some time... Uh, this week, in between meetings and greeting people and uh, finding my footing here in this wonderful congregation, but spending a little time with the church fathers. And the church fathers, when they talk about the parables, they say that, yes, uh, parables are about, there's moral and ethical considerations, as we've said, that uh, those are one of the things that the parable's about. It's about relationships. It's about our relationship with God and our relationship with others But the church fathers say all of those are contingent upon this one fact. That parables, first and foremost, are about Jesus. In every parable, Jesus, yes, he's conveying moral teaching. He's teaching us how to love our neighbor. How to be in a right relationship with those around us. But he's also teaching us something about himself in each parable. I love this picture. You'll see uh, in a couple of slides another modern rendering of this story. Um, You can substitute in this story, as we think it through and as we walk it through today, you can substitute any person or any group of people that you don't like. And imagine you are at a point of helplessness. And it's somebody from that group or that individual that you've conjured up in your mind. Isn't it incredible when we play that mental exercise to think of a group of people that we really despise or an individual? How quickly we can come right up with it, can't we? Well, hold that person or that group of people in your mind throughout this sermon. We'll come back to that. If we could go to the next slide, please. So this is just a reminder as we're moving through parables, they center on God's relationship with us. So there's a, there's a vertical implication. There's a horizontal implication. Our relationship with those around us. And there's moral and ethical concerns. All of it, though, centered on and getting its full meaning and context from the person of Jesus. You can go to the next slide, Melissa. We'll just leave this up here. Um, this might help bring the parable a bit to life a bit more. It's a, it's a modern rendering. I mean, this could be any town, couldn't it? It could be any city, any park. People dressed in clothes that we recognize. We see the difference in this picture, this difference in race and difference in gender. We'll leave this up here as we, as we move through the parable. Jesus... He's teaching here. This is the context in Luke. And I had Hal read those few verses before the parable because it sets the context for the parable, doesn't it? You know, often um, the narrator, Luke, who's transcribing these stories, he'll say when Jesus has his interlocutors, you know, the, the Pharisees or the scribes or the Levites or 
Nicodemus or the woman at the well, his, his conversation partner, often the writer will put in the motivation of the person with whom Jesus is speaking. So there are two clues here, aren't there? That the person to whom Jesus is speaking does not have the best intentions in this conversation. Verse 25, he came to test Jesus. And Jesus responds, you know, if you were to go through the Bible and count up the number of times that Jesus responds to a question with a question, you'd have a pretty long list. So he responds to the question. Here's a man who's an expert in the law. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns the question back on him. Goodness gracious, you know, you're an expert. You tell me. And then the man responds, and then Jesus says, yes, you're right. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. Well, then we see another indicator as to this man's motivation. In an attempt to justify himself. He says, who's my neighbor? Isn't that just like the human condition? In an attempt to justify himself. How many times are we confronted with Jesus and who he is and his teachings? We know what is right, and yet, in an attempt to justify ourselves, we look for a way out, just like this teacher of the law did. And so in response to that, Jesus offers this parable. Perhaps with that and the the man who had two sons, the prodigal son, um, perhaps these are Jesus' two most well-known parables. My goodness, we name hospitals after this parable, don't we? It has some, some traction sort of in our cultural and social consciousness. Even people who don't come to church probably could tell you a little bit about this parable. You know, in any good story, often the opening line is a clue. How many of you could tell me the opening line to Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities? It's the worst of times. Or how about my favorite novel, Moby Dick, Call Me Ishmael? There is something about the opening line that can set the tone or give us some context for what is to follow. So when Jesus starts this parable, he says there was a man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now again, when we see these parables, and indeed really when we come to all the Bible, especially Jesus' parables, they're like an onion. You peel away layers and you find more meaning, and things are meant to function on so many different levels. So yes, this man traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And if you know anything about Jericho, it is at the level of the Dead Sea. And Jerusalem is set up much higher, so you're literally traveling down to go to Jericho. But when, when we find Jerusalem all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, what is it? It's the city of God. It, it's, it's, it's heaven on earth. Jerusalem is held up, isn't it? as sort of the the model of the city, the very place where one can encounter God's dwelling place. It's Jerusalem. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we find that Jericho is typified in a much different way. When Joshua and the Israelites go into the Promised Land, what do they do? 
They march around Jericho. Jericho is considered in the Old Testament and in the New Testament this symbol of dysfunction, of sin. And so there's a man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and we're meant to understand it that way, but also there's another level of meaning here. There's a man who's gone from Jerusalem to Jericho, fallen into sin, dysfunction, helplessness. I remember very clearly, uh, and my wife as much as I do, Thursday morning, January 10th, 2019, I stood up to get out of bed, and I immediately fell down to the ground. I had no feeling from my waist down. And I was able to drag myself into the bathroom. I looked in the mirror, and this whole side of my face was droopy. So we got into the van. I was going to tough it out. Guys, how many of you can relate to that, right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe if you're unconscious and in a coma, you'll go to the doctor. But, but not before then. That's, you know, how I've been. And so my wife said, no, we're going to the hospital. So we went to the hospital, and um, there I am laying on a, on a stretcher in the emergency room, which is filled to capacity, waiting for uh, a doctor. And I'm given all sorts of tests, and everything's fine. And there was this uh, physician's assistant who kept wandering the halls, and he had kind of dirty scrubs on. And I thought maybe he was one of the janitorial staff. He kept coming by me and looking at me, and he goes, something's not right. And, you know, through my half-droopy mouth, I try, you think? Yeah, no, something isn't right. No. So I remember laying there, and finally I was getting ready to be discharged with uh, Bell's palsy, is what the doctor thought it might be. I was ready to be discharged, and that, uh, that angel, I really think he was, that physician's assistant there in the emergency room, he said, you know, but before you go, I'm going to call a neurologist and have him come in and check you out. Within two minutes of that doctor coming in, he diagnosed me. Something called Guillain-Barre syndrome. I don't know if any of you have heard. It was quite rare. Um, and so thank God I'm here today. I did a stint uh, three weeks in rehab, a week in the hospital. And, um, I, I, you know, as I was doing occupational physical therapy, the therapist would say to me, you shouldn't be recovering this quickly. I said, well, let me tell you. Let me tell you. Um, but I remember laying there in that hospital bed. It was the first time I'd ever spent a night in the hospital. And perhaps if any of you here and you've had major surgery or you've had a health uh, scare like this, you, you can relate to this. There's, there's a sense of absolute helplessness, isn't there? And I was laying there, and I, I couldn't move. I mean, I, I'm certainly not going to go into detail. You can use your imagination. But I had to have someone help me do everything. I was completely helpless. And I remember laying there and um, just, just being kind of overwhelmed by that feeling. Now, maybe you haven't done that. Maybe you haven't had a health concern. Maybe you haven't spent that time in the hospital. Maybe you or someone you know has wrestled with addiction. Pornography or to alcohol or drugs or gambling. You know, there's something, there's some wisdom in the 12 steps in that you're powerless and helpless to save yourself. Friends, that's sin. There's a condition into which all of us are born in this world, where we're, we're helpless, like we're lying in that hospital bed, or struggling with an addiction that we may try ourselves to break free from, but we just can't seem to do it. We've all, all of us, hear me now, all of us in this room, we've all gone down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And we need someone 
who's passing by to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And so as this man is laying there, two people who you would expect to help, to have the pathos and the empathy, to to be motivated out out of their religious commitment to stop and to help this man. A priest representing the, you know, the religious tradition of the time, and, and a Levite as well, another religious figure tied to the history of Israel. They see this man and, and they go by him. And, you know, I think that there's another clue in this parable. It says they have also, the Levite and the priest, gone down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Remember the person to whom Jesus is speaking. It's the teacher of the law. This is a good religious person. But what does Luke remind us of? He's testing Jesus, and he's trying to justify himself and get out of this demand that Jesus has made on his life, to love God and to love your neighbor. So yes, in a sense, these good, upstanding religious people, they're also mired in dysfunction and sin, trying to justify themselves. And it's the Samaritan. It's the one who would have been considered a half-breed, intermarried with the Assyrians hundreds of years before. They worshiped God differently. Considered an outsider. Someone at whom a good Jewish person would have looked at with deep suspicion. And it's the good Samaritan who stops. When those upstanding, dedicated yet corrupt and fallen religious folks pass by. It's the one that would have been least expected to stop and to help is the one who stops and helps. What are we meant to understand in this parable? Absolutely, as Melissa shared today, it teaches us how we're to love our neighbors, how we're to be filled with compassion, all of that. However, I want us to step back and take a bit of a different view so that we can understand where that Christian motivation of love and care comes from. As I've been reading the church fathers, they talk about this parable and their interpretation, which I think is so sound and so meaningful, is that the Good Samaritan is none other than Jesus Himself. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. He's the one who stops when everyone else has passed by and gets down, bandages the wounds, pours oil and wine into them. Perhaps you can start to read the layers of meaning here. You know, in Latin, the word there is salvo, related to the word savior. Salvo is the word from which we get healer. We call Jesus our healer and our savior. It's seen in this parable. Jesus is the one who stops when we're helpless, when we're helpless to save ourselves, when we can't do for ourselves what we know must be done. Jesus stops and he saves. Jesus puts, just like the Samaritan, takes us to a place where we can find healing and restoration. To an inn. What do you think that inn is? Where are we? Pope Francis calls the church a field hospital for sinners. 
Oh my, isn't that the truth? It's a field hospital for sinners. It's where Jesus has brought us. We've come into this place. And this is the place where we find restoration, where we do our healing, where we connect with other people who help us along our journey, where we learn to grow, to trust more deeply in the one who stopped when we were helpless and saved us. And you know, in the story of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan also takes money out, doesn't he? And he pays the innkeeper and he says, listen, if, if he incrues more of a charge while he's here, this is the Evan version, put it on my tab, I'm good for it. I'll pay it back. There's a Latin word also in this story, in this section where, where, where he pays the coin to the innkeeper, redeemere, redeemer. The word redeemer means what? To buy back. To purchase back. You see, all of us, we, 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 when, we, when we come into this world, we're in a particular condition. We need someone to buy us back, to pull us back, to save us from our sin. From this condition of, of helplessness that we find ourselves in. And Jesus, as our good Samaritan, has done just that. So Jesus, our good Samaritan, as we've gone from Jerusalem to Jericho, just like that man on the road, just like some religious people who think they have it all together, can you relate? We all find ourselves in the same boat. G.K. Chesterton, the great English Catholic writer, said that we're all in the same boat and we're all seasick. We're all in the same boat and we're all seasick. And our good Samaritan Christ offers us healing and redemption. So if that's the parable, then what's the so what? What now? What are the moral implications for this parable? Well, friends, we have someone who has shown us mercy and compassion when we couldn't show it to ourselves, when we couldn't show it to others. Well, maybe we didn't even know we needed it. Someone has stopped by healed our woundedness, taken us to a place of health and restoration. So we're to do the same for others. Friends, that's a a core law of the spiritual life, is that what we have received from Jesus, we're to give out to those around us. We don't hoard it. A good gift is meant to be given away. And each one of us has been given a gift in what Jesus has done for us. And we can attempt to justify ourselves to say, well, maybe I'll give my gift to Bill, but nobody else. I'll I'll, I'll love Nelson. I'll I'll, I'll maybe love Tony. But that's it. (laughs) Nobody else. An attempt to, to justify. We can continue in that mindset, can't we? where we want to show the love of Christ, but maybe only to those who deserve it. Maybe only to those who look like us, believe the same things that we do, or vote for the candidates or parties that we like. No. Friends, when Jesus looked at you, He didn't see any of those things. When Jesus looks at you, He doesn't see someone who's sinful. He doesn't see someone who's hopelessly bound in addiction. When Jesus looks at you, you know what He sees? 
Someone that he loves and died for and wants more than anything in the world to be healed, redeemed, and restored so that in turn, each one of us can be an agent of healing and redemption and restoration with Christ working through us in the world. That's the call. That's what each one of us is called to do. But my goodness, it's simple, yet difficult work, isn't it? Because that impulse, I'll throw myself right in with all of you. That impulse is right there, isn't it? To justify the love. To pick and choose who we want to serve. And yet that's not the way of the Christian life. We show compassion and love and mercy to all because Christ has shown it to us. When we were at our lowest, when we were helpless, when we were beaten and lying by the side of the road and other people were passing us by, there's someone who stopped, poured healing into our wounds, bandaged us up, picked us up, carried us to a place of safety, of restoration and health, and calls us to partner with Him in doing the same. May we have the courage to do just that. Amen.